0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Today we are going to discuss the ins and outs of getting started with SARS-CoV-2 bioinformatics. What are the pitfalls? It seems like an easy problem, but there are so many gotchas. Andrew and Nabil are part of the COG-UK consortium, which is a national effort in the UK to sequence and analyze SARS-CoV-2 to provide a real time map of the pandemic as it progresses. I am part of the spheres community, which is the US equivalent to sequence and analyze SARS-CoV-2. And to top it off, we are all part of the phage community, which is a global coalition that is actively working to establish consensus standards and improve bioinformatic tools and resources in public health microbial bioinformatics. I totally didn't lift that phage description off the website. <clears throat> <laughs> so guys, do you want to kick us off? What are, what are some of the pitfalls? How, how are you enjoying analyzing SARS-CoV-2? <laughs>
1: It's been a long year, I can tell you that. We have to skip Christmas and New Year's, and it just keeps on coming. But I think mostly we've settled down. What about you, Nabil?
2: Well, this new variant definitely is something a bit different. But yeah, we we've, a, lot, a lot of the stuff we struggled with to at the beginning, we've definitely overcome and we've kind of built some
1: normalcy around what we're doing. But in all of this, we have learned a lot of uh, stuff. You know, we've made uh, many, many mistakes and come across little gotchas. So we'd like to just tell people about those so that they don't make the same errors and they can just proceed straight to the good stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are two different ways you can slice different types of errors that at least we've seen is people making mistakes with how they generate and manipulate sequencing data and then sort of general mistakes they make when dealing with the contextual data that they get from the clinic.
0: So maybe like one, can I go back a step actually, I should have asked this question originally. We're all kind of coming from the foodborne bacterial world, like, was there like, was there something that was just like, I was not expecting that? (laughs) Because for me, like that, that expectation to go from like a five megabase genome to 30 kilobases, I was just like, this is going to be great. What? What
2: no, were your I, thoughts? <laughs> I felt exactly the same. I thought, "Oh, this this is easy. 30 kV, no worries."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could nearly print it out and align it by hand, you know.
2: How hard could it be? Famous last
1: words, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that is a big problem, though. I mean, a lot of people came from other fields, like you know, us, like bacteria and human genetics, cancer, that kind of thing. And they moved into viruses thinking, oh, this is easy. I'll apply the same methods that I've been using for 20 years. Same mappers, same parameters. I'll throw an assembler at something. You know, what could go wrong? And of course, then you realize viruses have their own little quirks and pitfalls. Like in human genetics, you don't have to deal with things, you know, a a genome where maybe one part is 10x coverage and then the next part is 10,000x coverage. Like assembler is just don't like that they they really do fall over at that point so those are things you need to consider you can't just transfer everything from one domain to another so i think a lot of mathematicians had to go and relearn bits and pieces they could you know they could transfer their skills quite easily but they had to be careful to relearn in the correct way to process the data efficiently without error
2: yeah that was that was definitely uh, another learning curve not just moving from between domains of it's not really alive is it (laughs) we're moving from different types of biological agents you have the issue that you're moving from whole genome shotgun to dealing with a lot of amplicon data a lot of messy amplicon data and that has its own quirks and requirements that you need to need to deal with as well and if i mean you can do shotgun i mean the first SARS-CoV-2 sequencing was just out of metagenomics, so it was like just straight shotgun. But it's much cheaper, obviously, to do targeted amplicon, and that's what most people do. But that has, yeah, problems that you have to keep in mind when you're approaching the data. That's different to probably what we're used to.
1: And a lot of bacterial data is forgiving. If you have a few errors in there, it doesn't really matter. Whereas in SARS-CoV-2, bioinformatics, every single SNP counts because it's a reasonably stable genome. Things don't really change that much. And when you're you know, down at that level where you're analyzing a single SNP to tell you if this is in the cluster or not, then you, you know every SNP really is important and you gotta get that right.
0: Okay, so one, big, one big, big issue that we discussed is basically like huge amounts of coverage. You're going from de novo or metagenomics over to amplicon-based sequencing so the, so the pipeline's changing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, luckily, in the early days, we already had pipelines established from the Arctic network. And for like Zika and Ebola, they already had these MFCO methods and they had bioinformatics methods established for those. And those were geared towards nanopore. But it meant that there was a foundation to work from. And so those are very quickly ported over to work for SARS-CoV-2 and adapted as things went along. Of course, we where we work, we primarily use Illumina. so it required a different type of pipeline, slightly different, to analyze that data and take into account all the different quirks of that. Other people use other types of uh, prep methods, so like hypercapture, that kind of thing. But predominantly, you know, last time I looked, it was virtually all amplicon sequencing in the world. Some people have taken Arctic and tweaked it, but Arctic is the primary. Uh, method for producing SARS-CoV-2 data. So yeah, just following on from that, one of the
2: pitfalls that people have, we've seen fall into is when you work in human genetics, or even bacterial genetics, it's quite common to call your variant sites and then go back to the reference sequence and use the reference to backfill extra to missing information for, for regions of the genome that you didn't recover on the first on, from your actual data. So that's going back with all of the N characters and just replacing that with the reference sequence or another, or you might do something like you call all your variants and then you just mutate the reference sequence to have just those changes in there and you keep everything else intact. Both cases sort of impute extra data that isn't there. And that's just a big no-no for the SARS-CoV-2 genomics because that's just not the kind of data that people are expecting. And the established expected result is that if the base isn't supported, you just put a placeholder and you just leave it. And it makes a big difference because the genome is so small that when people misbehave and just put in random bases, it can cause massive problems.
0: Is that something you have had experience with that you had to get across when you were first starting?
1: Yeah, I think Andrew had to run into that directly. Yeah, so I did a review of uh, care home papers that or long-term care facilities that use genomics to analyze outbreaks for surveillance. And there was one instance of a group actually filling in, you know, trying to make things complete. So they're filling in from the reference and also imputing. So they're looking at the tree and work, you know, if you have this SNP, then you should have this SNP, this kind of thing. So classic human genetics kind of stuff, but not really stuff you want to do with non-sequencing. Um, it doesn't really fit. Another issue is that when you get Amplicon data, you don't assemble it. And it is a bit of a problem. People don't necessarily realize that in the Amplicons, in the reads you have artificial sequences and those have to be masked out first before you then go do anything with them. If you just go and assemble them straight, then you effectively have like the reference strain in quite a large part of your assembled genome. So, you know, those have to be accounted for and the standard pipelines that people have built actually do take this into account for PreciseCov2.
2: Yeah, even with your mapping, you have to take that into account. Even if you do something fairly primitive, like taking your, you know, sequence read raw data and then just using blast or something against a reference, because then you'll find like there's this massive hanging off bit that doesn't align properly. Why it's going on? What, why isn't this like aligning 100%? And it's just because you've got synthetic sequence that's messing you up. So yeah, that has to be that. If going back to what you were saying before, Lee, like that's one of the things you really have to specifically address is, is
1: trimming out or masking
2: out uh, synthetic primers.
1: And some people think that Illumina data is okay, and it's and the first fifty bases or whatever will be just chopped off anyway by how it works when it inserts into an But actually, sometimes you do get a bit of that artificial sequence still in there, so you have to be careful and check for that. So. Just always be careful. Basically, gone sequencing is a little bit harder than you realize. And if you try and just blindly assemble stuff or if you blindly map stuff, it's not gonna work the way you expect. You're gonna get weird errors and they're gonna manifest in weird ways as well. It might be that your tree looks slightly off or something is in a slightly different cluster. But if you're giving that to people working public health like Lee, people might go and actually do real things with that data and that might end up to be really bad because you might draw the wrong conclusions,
0: oh yes,
2: yeah, just following on from that, this sort of doves into another gotcha is you have to explicitly look for human reads and remove them, and it and you kind of assume that if you're doing target targeted amplicon, you shouldn't get rand aberrant reads from the host, but you you might, and you have to be very, very careful, so for all our data. Yeah, basically, your first step is you're mapping it to the, I mean, the easiest, most trivial way to get rid of human reads is to just look at the reads that map to the virus. There's no overlap between the two. So if it maps to the virus, it's not human. So that's fine. That's one of the easiest ways to do it. But there's a lot of other tools out there that go off and, and remove human reads. But you need to do that as initially first deal with synthetic sequences and deal with human reads.
1: And also, we find that occasionally we'll get samples where we've got lots of reads have been sequenced, but there's no coronavirus in there at all. And usually, you know, it might be a false positive or maybe the wrong sample was picked in the lab and sent to us, that kind of thing. But you'll get hundreds of thousands of reads which aren't coronavirus, which make it all the way through the entire prep process and then get to you at the end. So you got to be careful. But, you know, it, it's just random stuff. It's it's probably their microbiome in, from the mouth or whatever. But you have to be careful with that. So we always look for, uh, after we've done the human mapping, we look for fully mapped reads to the coronavirus genome dealing with Lumina data. So f- full length, we're not looking for, you know, the itty little bit, bits like that are 25 bases long. You know, say if you've 150 bases matching, then that's what you want to do you know if you're doing 100 150 paired end sequencing
2: yeah you have to be, be careful, careful. <laughs> if you want to check that a covid's that that a sample truly does have coronavirus in it you need to see fully intact reads and if it's Illumina, it's going to be you know a cigar string of 150 matches right 150 you know 145 matches or something like that bases matching or
0: yeah i keep trying to to figure out which pipeline to use for this or that. And it's getting updated so fast, so furious. And, and it's just because all this is so new. So what are the, what are the tools, what are the pipelines uh, that you guys are using now?
1: Well, first of all, I'd say don't reinvent the wheel because we've been doing this for a year. The world has been doing this for a year and you don't need yet another pipeline. There are so many examples in the literature of uh, groups going and doing their own thing and getting it wrong and making minor mistakes or using the incorrect version of something and they get the incorrect conclusions and everything is unsound. So don't reinvent the wheel. Instead, there are lots and lots of pipelines out there. The most commonly used for Arctic is actually Arctic's own pipelines on the Arctic network website. And then for Illumina, Tom Connor's lab in Wales, Public Health Wales, they've gone and taken a fork of that and added on extra stuff for Illumina. So I would use those, that's what we use.
2: Yeah, I mean, it fits more into the Nextflow environment and and more with the principles around designing better Nextflow workflows. There are dime a dozen pipelines coming out of public health labs. I think any public health lab that's looking at this has sort of spun out their own thing. And one of the ones that if that, that I recommend if you have a pipeline and you've written it and you have, or you have just some data and you want to start playing around with quality control and looking at sequencing results, there's NCOV tools, which just allows you to just dig into the BAM files and just get some basic metrics out. So even, even that kind of data munging that you would say, Oh, I need to write a script for that. It's done. There's really not much, and then there's a GitHub page from the CDC written by Duncan McCannell, which just has a, which was started like, it's about eight months old now, but it still has this exhaustive list of pipelines. There are pipelines for Lumina, pipelines for PacBio, pipelines for every, I think every sequencing platform already out there. IonTorrent, I'm sure there's one out there. Um, I've seen I, IonTorrent data in the wild. It's It's quite wild. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, everybody's, had a crack at it okay if you want to write one for four five four then i don't think that exists but nobody's going to use it the one area that i think there is scope is is the visualization and reporting because that is a very bespoke thing and that changes depending on your audience and your question so if you're trying to, you know, it's a different way you'd represent data if you're saying, oh, what lineages have changed week to week versus what's going on across the country versus what are the individual mutations or which parts of the genome are under selection. You're going to you're going to use the same output data from all of these pipelines. So don't make a new pipeline, but you might have specific interpretations. And that's where you can start playing around with but for that you're going to go back to standard data viz. So R matplotlib, numpy, scipy, I don't know what the Perl one is, if there is a Perl statistics uh, package. I cannot
0: remember if there's a specific Perl statistics package. There are like several smaller ones. Well, you do it by
1: hand, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's the Perl way. <laughs> In the UK, there's programs called Civit, and by Anya O'Toole and Verdi Hill, and a few other things that integrate like Pangolin and they will overlay your data on trees and then try and contextualize things. And there's uh, other report reporting tools which overlay stuff on maps. You know, there, there's quite a lot, but a lot of these rely on say private data sets for to enhance your genomic epidemiology. So it's gonna be different for every country. So maybe that is something you do need to write you can use orga which is the next strain sort of do it yourself
2: version so if you if you want to spin that up you can do that so and you can always if you if you just generate the the correct metadata table and the correct newic file you can chuck it straight into microreact and use that as well so your data viz on the philo side is is good i think when, when i say like the scope it's really more when you want to get nitty gritty and start dealing with like individual comparisons between sequences of one sample versus another for one reason or another, that's where you've got a bit of wiggle room to, to go and make something or to look at something.
1: Well, I'd argue a lot of that is solved actually by say cov and clades at next train. So there, there is a lot of tools out there where you can drag and drop files and then you magically get these reports and you can analyze a lot of samples as well. You can even with Pangolin, you can drop in files, on a website and it will go and tell you what the lineage is there. So there's a lot of stuff that's done, but yeah, you're right. For the more bespoke stuff, like even today, uh, I was working with Nabil and Tan to look at say particular mutations, you know, and it was very, very specific to a cluster, you know, really digging into it and uh, trying to extract out some magic information, but that had to be done, you know, in R basically.
2: Yeah. But, but generally, no, totally agree. generally, there's no need to run off and make this huge you know, monolithic pipeline to do something with SARS-CoV-2. It's all been done at this point.
0: Well, we're talking about the pitfalls and everything today. So if, if you have a war story in there, like what were, you, what were you trying to dig out for the viz and...
2: No, I had, I had a very primitive example where I just wanted to look at the basis of the variant calling in a particular sample. Right. I just wanted to know why it was this versus this. And normally you'd write some fancy thing that's digging into SAM tools and doing this, that, or the other. And, you know, I was getting excited. And then someone just linked me the NCOV tools. And I just looked at that and said, like, oh, that just does everything I wanted. There's <laughs> nothing, there's nothing for me to do. It just spits out the report I wanted It just tells me exactly what the heterogeneity of the base was like, there's nothing left. This is oh I just run it and tell Andrew what happened. <laughs> <laughs> how boring. Someone already. Yeah, did it I know. It's boring. <laughs> you sort of think, oh, I'm gonna have this little intricate problem to play with. It's like, no. Nah, just run this. You got the numbers out. That's it. So yeah, there's not there's some stuff, but yeah, for the most part it's it's solved. It's a bit sad, really.
0: <laughs> so so for the people just like listening, how how do we spell NCOP tools? How do they find that one?
2: ncov O L S.
0: Okay, NCOV.
2: I mean, a lot of the stats I wanted is also bundled into the Arctic bioinformatics package as well. So, yeah, it's it's just been implemented over and over again.
1: I know a question I'm asked, I've been asked a few times, is about complete genomes. Some people seem to be obsessed with getting like 100% complete uh, coronavirus genome. And then they are disappointed when they don't. And they really try and push to get 100% out of every single genome. And if it's less than that, you know, if if it's not even GIZA quality, they don't consider that to be any good. So I know a lot of this is just dictated by the quality of the sample. Nabil, you've done a bit of work on this, haven't you?
2: Yeah. So we've been going back and trying to see, just having a look at, which why samples fail and most of it is down to not having enough viral material to begin with and there's really nothing you can do about there's no post-production fix for that if the if the fragment isn't there if you haven't got the seed in it it's just not going to happen and and as we said before don't go back and backfill because that's not what anyone's expecting is uh, expecting so you just you're just going to have I think the best thing to do with that if you want to get the best genomes out is you're going to need to start thinking about introducing cycle thresholds uh, and cutoffs for your cycle thresholds. But that's all on the wet lab side. That's not for us. And the BIMFI side is too late when it comes to us. Well, so, if they
1: go and start sequencing stuff that's like CT40, then, you know, they can't complain when it doesn't work. Yeah. I think if
2: you want, I think, so the number varies slightly because it depends on the protocol. Right? So, so this isn't a hard and fast number, but once you run a few, you will get a feeling of what this cutoff will be for your particular uh, you know, setup. But generally, if it's higher than 30, CT32, CT33, you're not going to get enough genome back that you're going to be able to use it reliably in phylogenetic analysis, just as a rule of thumb. And that, I think
1: that sort of threshold is put around in the literature a bit as well. Although there, you'll always find a use for data and there'll always be experiments where you might want to push it a bit more. So you might take partial data if it's a really important sample or maybe it's a reinfection sample and you really, really are interested to know is this the same lineage or is it a different lineage or, or whatnot? Or if it's someone with a long-term infection, you know, and you want to track mutations, maybe their viral load has dropped, but you really are interested in, in what's going on there. So there, there are cases for going above it but generally, you know, you may be just wasting your money if you are trying to sequence something, as Nabil says, where the virus just isn't there.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you want to get this data out into the public domain, I mean, if you've got your own burning desire to answer a question that Andrew's describing, that's 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 a separate matter. But if you want to get it out into the public domain and you wanna include it in these beautiful next strain. Figures and all these trees and so on. You need 90% of the base is confidently called, and when we say confidently called, we mean that for Illumina, you need at least 10 10x coverage for that site, and for nanopore you need about 20. That that's so. If you're not getting that, it's it's just it's not good enough. And no contamination. No contamination. Yeah. So that so that I think leads into another gotcha is that you need to be very careful with cross-contamination when working with this. I think people don't realize like you're amplifying it a fair bit and you will pick up a lot of, lot of stuff. You will get all all sorts of things flying around the lab. So you have to be vigilant with, with controls all through the, to the process.
0: So one thing you mentioned, I just as a, a person coming into this more and more for any given like surveillance system, like, are you are you saying that a lot of stuff depends on the C T value? Should that be recorded and kept alongside the sample? Is that something to be, be submitting to the public databases?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say basically if if the diagnostic because normally the diagnostic test is is PCR anyway, so you kind of get the value for free when the when the lab runs through it. But if they're not, if you're using some other platform for the diagnostic test that doesn't give you a quantifiable value, you're going to have to probably do a quantification step. Okay. And, I mean, I mean you, can, was... you can just sequence it. You can just run off and sequence it, but don't come crying to me when it doesn't work.
0: <laughs> I know that was like a really leading question, but like, I don't know if I've seen that. I like actually specified, like you should be recording this and I would like to make sure that we have said that at least
2: you don't have you don't have to do anything (laughs) except don't backfill your bases don't try to assemble it (laughs) i mean don't publish that data but if if you if you're trying if you're in this scope where you're like i want to get the best genomes i can i want to make sure that i'm successful with with getting a genome out you're going to have to go back you're going to have to think about your cycle threshold cutoffs and if you're not. If you don't have that value, you're going to have to generate it.
1: And also sequencing is very expensive and PCR is cheap. So you're, you're better off spending, you know, a few cents to do a PCR than you are spending, I don't know, $50 to, to sequence something. And I think it also
2: it also it there's also a hidden human labor cost involved where Samples that flow into this workflow of the sequencing and then they get this result and then you have to feed back saying these failed and uh, That that going backwards and forwards sort of starts to become a waste of time It's much easier that if you just say no, this isn't worth it We're not going to do it and you just cut it there and you just let everything flow sort of laterally in one direction It just makes your workflow that much easier
1: So we should always include negative controls, but we should always also look at the negative controls as well. That's another pitfall because sometimes people run them and they think, oh, great job done, but they haven't actually looked into them. So Nabil, what would you say? Could you give us some examples of what happens with negative controls?
2: What you see? Not sure what you mean, actually.
1: Okay, different different patterns you might see. Like you might see just low-level contamination or the odd primer dimer or... You might see you know, 25 base reads, that kind of thing. Yeah, so
2: what, what I've found particularly for Illumina because you're amplifying that much, you, you're going down like 3,000 times. That's your depth of coverage often, not often. And you're doing that because you want all of the amplicon primers to fire at a depth to, to, to get you enough yield back so that you can actually recover the genome. So you are going to pick up primer dimers, so you might, see a, you might see a blank which just has a bunch of low level short trash in it. You might look at that sequence and realize that it's just like random primer junk and you, so you have to think carefully, like your, your blank probably isn't going to be like zero reads. You're going to get, you might get like a few or something and you have to be quite careful with the number of reads that come through on your blank and some of it is okay some of it you can let it pass because you look at it and you go like oh it's just a couple of reads of primer dimer or whatever it's fine sometimes it can look quite nasty and you can see short fragments and a lot of them and you might think actually our primer stock is contaminated which which can happen and then other times you might see very very nice handsome 150 base pair reads in your blank And then you might think, well, actually this is an issue. I've got some cross-contamination going on. And so there's a lot of different, different outcomes you can get and just you need to sort of dig into your blank and not just look at the total number of reads that are there, but the length of them, how many of them map to the reference genome and how well they map to the reference genome, whether these are like partial 50 base pair, 30 base pair mappings, or these are like intact reads and then make an assessment on is that, does, what does that mean for the rest of my run. One of the things is to look at could you, if running, run the blank to your variant calling pipeline and does, do you get variants called from your blank? If you see that, that's when you really should start to panic because that variant, if it's in your blank then it's probably cross contaminated to every sample in your run. And you're probably going to get this weird hybrid chimera and that's just not something you want to put out there
1: into the public domain so you should probably junk that run so one way to reduce the number of uh, reads in your blanks is for say Illumina to set the barcoding to be very strict and allow no mismatches and on Nanopore you make sure that the barcodes are on both ends and that seems to get rid of you know a, a fair few uh, of these stray reads yeah Otherwise, i think that crosstalk
2: yeah I think that's a mandatory setting especially for the nanopore is to make sure that you've got both you've got both indexes on the read otherwise yeah you will run into some pretty nasty nasty problems and with the illumina yeah we learned early on that you need to set the number of allowed mismatches to zero just because you don't want anything to come through via like barcode bleeding and, and obvious stuff. I mean, I should also mention obvious stuff. Cycle your your indexes as well from run to run. Don't keep using the same indexes that you did on the last run. That, that's <laughs> a basic thing, but people may not be aware of that. And that is doubly important in this case. Particularly uh, to... if
1: you're washing flow cells.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you know if there are any pitfalls for mixed plate sequencing? Like if there's bacteria and SARS-CoV-2 on the same plate?
1: It actually improves see. things.
0: Oh, an anti-pitfall.
1: Uh, actually, yeah, we've, we've found that it does improve things when there's more diversity on the plate. All right. It's a good thing. Although your bacteria will be contaminated probably with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So as long as people don't go and say, oh, my microbiome has SARS-CoV-2 in, I don't know, some random environment, you'll be fine. Or food is contaminated or something like that. Yeah, you might see a little bit of barcode bleed through, which is
2: you know which you always do, which is a li- which is generally fine. But what you really want to avoid is when someone runs like a microbiome sample on the same plate as the COVID one and then runs away saying like all these people from last year had coronavirus in their feces and it's like no, you didn't. But this is this is standard sequencing stuff. I I I would hope it's just it just comes to the fore in this situation because now it's not just academic. You're, you're sequencing something to inform the real world. This is, this is, this is reality now. So it matters. It's not just a mistake in a supplementary figure that just gets a paper that nobody reads. Like people are going, governments will make decisions based on
1: on the stuff that you're putting out there. On the subject of putting stuff out there, <clears throat> it was only when the new variant came out that people suddenly out of nowhere started dumping data into GizAid. It seemed that quite a few groups around the world were just holding it back in reserve. I don't know why, but it is great now that people are sharing a bit more. In the UK, I know for COG UK, everything we we generate goes onto our website first, basic, basically on a a daily run, or sometimes it doesn't work, but maybe every two days, and then up gets uploaded weekly to GizAid. So there is a constant flow into the public domain of, of data. And hopefully more countries around the world will enable their flows as they produce data rather than hoarding it. And then, you know, like parasites, use everyone else's data, but not give back.
2: Yep, the COG UK website has 176,000 000 coronavirus genomes for you to play with right now. You can just go download it. It's five gigs, but you know, you can go off and play with that. And there's some minimal metadata that anyone can look at with the lineages all, all for anyone to play, anyone to use. And uh, that's on top of putting it into GISAID and, and into the ENA as well.
0: You've both said some pretty topical things. So maybe it's important just to say what the data is because things rapidly change. Uh, it's uh, January 13th. So what, what was the new variant today, which is probably going to be different than the one tomorrow?
1: The new one today is the Brazilian one from the Amazon region. Called P1. Is, uh, P1, yeah. It might be named something else, but it's P1 right now.
2: P1. And,
0: and, uh, and also topical is how many genomes you have up on COG UK, because that's going to rapidly change too.
1: No, it was 176k when I checked yesterday. But I think internally they've done two hundred thousand, but not all of them have passed quality control. Yeah, we should probably by the
2: we we would probably by the time anyone's listening to this that we would be well over two hundred thousand.
1: It's well on track to be the most sequenced organism in the world. You know, give it a year and there'll be substantially more. I'd say. You know, as the US and other countries come on stream, it's going to ramp up rapidly. Yeah, other than (laughs) PhyX. Actually, yeah, you're right, yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: Can't beat X. <PHYX. laughs>
0: no. Amazing. So um, what what would you say to people deciding which entity to submit to? There's Gizaid and then there's the INSDC consortium.
2: Yes, INSDC is your regular GenBank, EBI, NCBI, DDBJ. You know, everyone has a different name for it the regular public database that you're used to.
0: So from my understanding, it's probably better to submit to both if possible. But what I've heard is NCBI, you, you kind of put it on the open, you lose, and you, and you let people work on it. You may or may not get credit right away, but GISAID seems to protect authorship pretty well.
1: So you think that. So GISAID was where, it was originally for flu, and they very quickly spun up uh, a separate entity for coronavirus and they have extra protections in there. And that's to make sure that say, if you're from a low income country and you're providing data, that maybe some company doesn't just come in and steal it and make a vaccine. And then you can't afford to buy that vaccine that's based on your data, you know, sort of extra protections in there to make sharing a bit easier where people are maybe a bit more hesitant and want more restrictions with the INSDC. So GZ only takes uh, genomes. So with the INSDC, they can take raw reads and they can take the genomes as well. And they ha- have much looser guidelines and it's, you know, it's it's more like creative commons in terms of sharing data. But we have found that getting data in can be a challenge and the turnaround times are measured usually in weeks rather or months rather than in hours, which is what you need in a pandemic. So... While they're getting up to speed, I suppose the GizAid will remain the main place for sharing data. However, the big problem is a lack of metadata, which is something that Phage is working on improving. I think everyone wants to improve it, but it is a bit of a challenge. And not just metadata, but actual consistent metadata that Maybe it's based on ontologies, things like that, you know, because otherwise it's it's a bit useless if you just put a random stuff online.
0: Yeah, I seem to recall maybe talking about that specification in a previous podcast episode.
1: Oh, did we? Oh, great. (laughs) Okay, see the previous episode.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, having... Done data submissions to both ENA and GZAE. GZAE is much easier but obviously it's because it's a sort of a flat submission where it's just a consensus sequence and your metadata so it's sort of one-to-one ENA obviously ENA and CBI whatever is a bit difficult because you have to create a project then there's a sample then within the sample there's an experiment and within an the experiment there's some reads and then linked to the reads is an assembly and so there's this like tangled web of data interacting
1: with each other which is
2: important
1: no, but... the the assembly is actually linked to the sample, not to the reads.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, is it? Hang on. Yeah, biosample.
1: The fact that we're confused is because <laughs> it is a, a a very complex thing, and the barrier for someone to actually get into that is very very high. I think yeah. you're right. I'm sorry. No, you're right. You
2: link the analysis back to the sample biosample.
0: Yeah, I've had to make, it is a confusing topic and I've had to make figures for PIs at CDC for this. It, and I still get confused sometimes.
2: Yeah, I mean, for the, within the, if, if anyone is stuck as part of the um, phage SARS-CoV-2 metadata specification, we included some walkthroughs, that, like, you know, click by click, how to actually do the submissions on both platforms, on all the platforms, then CBI or EBI or GISAID. Mm-hmm. That might help people if they're really stuck. But it's it's tricky.
0: I think I had another question based on what you said earlier. So if I'm just starting out again, I'm, I'm the kind of the imposter here, starting out in SARS-CoV-2 world. And I want a bioinformatics benchmark data set. Now I know that you have, you know, thousands of genomes online. Is there like a standard data set that people are coalescing over as a benchmark?
2: No. <laughs> no. It would depend on country to country what you'd be using.
1: Okay. So the standards are taking time to catch up. <laughs> the pandemic will be over by the time they're they're made. I mean if
2: I guess you could grab the cog data and just pick one sequence per lineage at
1: random. That's a start. Maybe you should make a standardly.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking something to work towards. I have Okay. Always be promoting, I guess. So I have started, started making a, a simulated benchmark data set. And I put that on my GitHub so far. And by simulated, I mean, I started, I used the tree to reads pipeline. by Jane McTavich and, and Ruth Timmy and others I'm forgetting. I'm sorry if I am. And, and what you do is you start off with a tree and you say that this is my tree and that's the true tree. It's no longer hypothetical ancestors. It's no longer anything. This is the tree. And you start off with an anchor genome. And I started off with Wuhan one. And you basically run this pipeline, which backfills what SNPs were needed in order to make that tree. So that if a perfect pipeline were run on these simulated assemblies, it would actually recreate that tree.
2: So it's ancestral reconstruction, but backwards.
0: so I've started making that in my GitHub repo. It's definitely in a draft state, but I have about 3,500 assemblies, simulated assemblies. And I would say there are some pitfalls to it that the SNPs are probably not biologically informative or let's see another pitfall might be, well, I'm, I'm trying to think of them on the spot right now, but there are some pitfalls, especially related to the biology of the SNPs, which there is no biology of the SNPs. But, but it's, it's the beginnings of a, of a benchmark data set.
1: Actually, a better benchmark data set would be if you had physical biological samples that you could send to labs and you could say, go and sequence these 12 samples and then we'll see what, it, what you get out the other end, you know? So end to end kind of validation nearly. Definitely. I would
0: love to see that. Definitely. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys
2: have got to catch up.
0: Come on. Well, there's a project idea for a listener. <laughs> Or for us, or for whoever?
2: There is the, I think the main one, the main one is the, yeah, it's the use Wuhan 1 as the reference. That is, I think, pretty much the established reference genome. So that is the GenBank MN908947. Did you get it? Do you, do you, do you memorize that? no i just read it off but i do remember the first couple of letters and <laughs> that that's the one that's the that's the one you should you should use i think that's pretty much established as a standard at this point point.
1: and what date was that collected on oh i've got the record around you somewhere it was the i think it was december the 26th maybe or 29th oh it doesn't
2: say in the gem bank record i don't know what it says in the nature paper what about submitted jan 5th submitted jan 5th apparently i'm
0: looking this up i have to know now
1: <laughs> i suppose on, on the subject of uh reference genomes and calling you know samples things having a good sample identifier is is a good first step a good sample identifier is going to have to be something you know that you can use all the way through your process that's anonymized and you can stick in a tube so someone can read it off if they have to transcribe it manually, but also that you can then go and like scan it like with a barcode reader or whatever. And not too long either. You know, you don't want to want like 20 numbers or 30 numbers. No one's going to be able to say, Oh yeah, I've got sample XYZ one, two, three, four, five. So you need something nice and nice and precise. And you don't want people's zip codes in there or or postcodes or patient numbers and all this kind of hoopla that you often get accidentally. So a Cog, we have two parts of our sample identifier. The first part is where it was sequenced. So in our case, it's N O R W, Norwich, which is the place where our institute is based. And then each different sequencing center has their own prefix. And then there's a suffix, and actually the suffix is the, the unique, is the consortium-wide unique bit, and that's letters and numbers. And they've been chosen so they, you know, you don't have a zero and the letter O conflicting, like it's one or the other, and so that means when you read it, you can easily see what it is. Yeah, it's easy. It's e- You have to take
2: into account like a whole bunch of different things, because when you make this identifier, it's going to be used by a human being who's going to read it in the lab. It's going to be people talking about it on on the phone or remote meetings. It's going to be on figures. It's going to be on computer text, you know, in, in scripts and trees and, and so on. So You know, it's so all of that has to be taken into consideration, you know, like you can have really long you can have and it has to be unique. As far as everyone's using it. It has to has to be always unique and not patient identifiable. I haven't heard of any situation where that's happened at least for covid but i have heard about it for other for bacterial stuff and it is a nightmare when someone realizes that the sheer panic <laughs> when someone emails you going like oh i actually accidentally named the, these you know whatever strains
1: with their social security number <laughs> and they persist as well you know if you look back at the original uh Chicano dysentery going back uh, to the world war one like, they named it after the guy, Private Cable, who, you know, was the poor poor guy who passed away from it. And that's persisted, you know, for, what, 100 years? We we don't want, you know, to make a mistake now in a, in a sample identifier and then have patient-identifiable information there forevermore going forward. Awful. Yeah.
0: That's a war story. Good job.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, you just have to be careful. One thing is... I would avoid putting weird characters. There's no reason to put weird characters in your sample identifiers, like commas or colons or, you know, slash drop tables. (laughs) (laughs) Little
0: Bobby tables. (laughs) Yeah. Don't put the
2: Bobby tables kind of stuff in there. Oh, like the salmonella, you know, where they have the
1: colons and all of that.
2: Yeah. The antigenic formulas, Uh but if you've got commas, it breaks everyone's like CSV files. I think don't, I mean, it's a bit mean, but try not to put Unicode characters in your sample IDs because people's scripts break because they don't read Unicode. That would be,
0: I mean, I I am going to follow what you said there. I believe in it. But also at the same time, it would be kind of amazing if somebody put some emojis inside of their sample name.
2: Good idea. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Little face mask for a SARS-CoV-2 sample. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just have a thumbs up or thumbs down if it's positive or negative or
1: something. <laughs> so, I suppose one last thing, or maybe a few last little points, right, that I think I've missed. Uh, sometimes you get mutations, they're not all equally informative. So, if you get C to U or C to T variants, lots of them often that can be a sign that the sample is a bit degraded or is stored incorrectly rather than, you know, like lots of mutation. So just be aware of that. And also, if you find that every single one of your samples is passed, then you should be very, very afraid because some of them should fail. And if it's 100% passed, then, you know, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong.
0: So are you saying... Also, at the same time that there's definitely some amount, some percentage that you're always sending back to resequence? What do you do with
1: that? We never resequence. We do occasionally get multiple samples from the same person and occasionally we'll sequence those accidentally, but ideally we don't want to sequence the same person multiple times because it's expensive, you know? And there are far too many samples for us to sequence. Additionally, in the UK, we have like a, we try and only focus on recent samples. So maybe samples collected in the last three weeks or less, ideally in the last week. We don't want to sequence stuff now that has been collected maybe last March or April, because that's, while it's academically interesting, it's not interesting for public health response at this moment in time. And you can see the kind of recency, of different countries around the world varies quite substantially. You know, some countries you can see, oh, like a lab, gets a big batch and they'll sequence stuff all the way back through the pandemic, back to, you know, February and onwards. But is that really interesting now? Not really. And you could see then with the new variant, while the UK was dumping in lots of, you know, right bang up to date genomes, there was other countries, I'm not going to say the US, which, you know, were putting in mostly old genomes, say 8,000 old genomes, and then like 50 recent genomes. And it was like this kind of imbalance. So that meant that they didn't have, at that point in time, they didn't have coverage on what exactly was floating around in the country, you know, and they didn't necessarily know was the new variant there or not from sequencing alone. Yeah, I think, I
2: think if we ever get out of this alive, we'll have plenty of time to go back and do retroactive s- studies. Right now, we just need to get through this
0: a lot of the stuff that i'm doing is just qaqc that's all i've been asked to do really in my in my day job so a lot of my questions are kind of newcomer questions like is there a standard qaqc pipeline that people are using and and can i can i get in on that can i just run that for myself locally do you guys have anything like that
2: So most of the pipelines are including some basic QC as you know as as part of it. The thing is is that the output is like designed for us. And you might need to do a little bit of legwork to convert it into a sort of like green, yes, like traffic light green, yes, red means you know, no for the sample output. Do you do a yellow? No, we don't. don't, I don't know what Andrew talks to the clinic more directly than
1: I do. I don't know what he tells them. Well, often uh, the clinicians just want to know, are these the same or are they different? You know, is is this the same outbreak in which case on a ward, in which case it might be just nosocomial spread or is it multiple introductions, say from outside and they're all totally different? We see both of those. Sometimes we get questions about, you know, like a hospital outbreak, are they all the same? Answer is no, or factory outbreak and like a meat factory, yes, they all happen to be the same. Or then we've had cases where, say, a second or third meat factory has been infected and we find multiple introductions and we can track it through genomics because we've done so much sequencing in, in another factory. We can say, okay, well, actually, it looks like, say, four different introductions of this lineage have appeared around the same time. And by complete coincidence, have you, you know, moved staff from the factory that closed because of COVID into a different factory and now infected everyone? So, you know, you you see these kind of things or with prisons, you know, all all of these closed environments where you can track a bit better, you know, what comes in and what goes out. And is it the same? Is it different? And that can inform then measures that people put in place. That took a, a really wide turn. I love
0: that because that's another war story almost. It's just like you were able to talk to epidemiologists and turn that into something actionable.
1: Yeah, usually it is, we talk directly to the public health officials who then, you know, might go knock on doors or ring people up and do contact tracing, that kind of thing, or go into factories and do, you know, mass asymptomatic screening. And also to the, the virologists, you know, people who are actually on the wards, you know, making a real difference. And you know, stuff that we've said has resulted in ward closures and deep cleaning and that kind of thing. You know, they know there's a problem and we can go back and say, actually, this looks like it's hospital associated rather than, you know, just random stuff from the community coming in with, with visitors or staff or whatever. So yeah, we can provide useful information as mathematicians, as long as, you know, there's no contamination and the bioinformatics is correct And, you know, you're not just seeing random contamination, you know, giving a signal. And it can also
2: be used to rule out, actually. And it's a lot easier to do that. That That's also quite reassuring, right? Like, yeah, it's circulating, but it's not spreading to the ward. It's not because people in the ward are spreading it from one to the other. That it is community. Absolutely. It's just multiple community introductions. And that's that's like a good news. That's a good validation. And that's something else you can get out of the genomics. So it's not always like doom and gloom. <laughs> if you send it for sequencing, you're going to find out, oh, it's, it's terrible.
1: Well, unfortunately, a lot of the questions we can't answer, you know, because often when you have an outbreak, every genome is identical. And it's like, well, you know, we we can't tell you who introduced this or who's the index case because the incubation period, you know, is like, what, two to 14 days. And it may be the person who who was symptomatic on day 13 was actually the index case rather than the people who became symptomatic earlier. You know, all this kind of jazz. It's hard.
0: I'll do one more question that's on the top of my mind.
1: So, okay, just going past the
0: pipelines, like, can you drill it down just to the very basics? What is the essence of the QC that we should actually be checking? Like earlier, I heard you say that you should have 90% of the genome. Like, what are the other QC steps that I should definitely be checking on?
2: Yeah, that's... It depends. Okay. So quality control is, is going to have many different aspects to it. So it's sort of like, what is the error? What is the issue that you're afraid of? And that's how you're going to design your QC. So when I'm saying like you need 90% of the genome of confidently called, that's the cutoff to get it submitted into, for, for public consumption. That's just one, you know, that's one hurdle that you need to need to cross. But we also talked about checking blanks and just looking if there are is cross-contamination in your samples. And that's going back to your blanks and looking at aberrant mutations jumping all over the place. That's that's one type of quality control. You might look at, you might look at coverage depth to look at variations in that to see if certain primers are failing for your amplicon sequencing. It it depends on what what you're worried about, really. On, a, on any given day. There's plenty of worry about these days, right? Yeah.
0: All right. Do you want to put an end cap on it? We've talked about a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of things we
1: talked through. Well, when it does work, it works really well. So maybe end on a positive note that it is really useful for uh, genomic epidemiology and for mapping out the course of the pandemic and for identifying new variants. You know, in no, in no other his- point in history would we have been able to look at a pandemic as it unfolded in real time and see the dynamics and how it changes and mutates like this is amazing stuff. And it gives people amazing amounts of data to tackle the pandemic and make changes and put in place lockdowns and to notice trends like the, the UK variant that's come out recently.
2: Yeah. I mean, this was science fiction five years ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm proud to be part of it, at least tangentially.
2: Well, hope it helps. I, th- I think the, for me, the the take home is the same cliche that we always say is like you know don't reinvent the wheel. The chances are, try to locate and use an existing pipeline that's been specifically developed for SARS-CoV-2. It's probably out there for what you're trying to do, and just try to use that.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast. Please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadram Institute. Okay, I couldn't have said it better. I think that you guys give a good end cap.
2: Right, yeah, we'll just end there. Then you can just finish after my sentence, and then put your standard, thank you for listening, if you enjoyed it. <laughs> so fine, <do> it
1: <laughs> okay, uh, we can, do you want to save it then, or stop recording?
0: Yeah, that's a wrap, we can just do the music. mm hmm do <laughs> do